Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Comedy Central. Coming to you from New York City, the only city in America, it's The Daily Show. Tonight... Doing it for the gram. Who wants to be Idaho? And Raphael Mongol. This is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for coming out of question. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being here. We got a great show for you tonight. Take a seat, everybody. Let's do this thing. We've got a great show. It's really packed. Nancy Pelosi is kicking off World War III. We sent Ronnie Chang to Idaho, and Kim Kardashian is gonna beat Mark Zuckerberg's ass. So, let's do this, people. Let's jump straight into today's headlines. Before we get into the big stories, let's catch up on a few other things that are going on. Uh, First of all, President Biden has officially tested negative for COVID and he got his doctor's approval to come out of isolation. Yes, which is great, really is great. It's also the only positive approval he has at the moment, you know, but that's a start, that's a start. In economic news, the Federal Reserve has announced that it will be raising interest rates yet again to try and fight inflation. Yeah, so your ability to buy a house has gone from no chance to what part of no chance don't you understand? (laughs) Oh, and in pandemic news, two new studies have concluded that COVID-19 almost certainly started at the Wuhan markets. Yeah, and I'm so glad we have this information because I mean, now it's clear what we have to do, right? We gotta build a time machine and go back in time two years and invest in Peloton because it's gonna blow up when the, po- when the pandemic hits, it's gonna be huge. Make a lot of money. Seriously, what are, we, like, what are we supposed to do with this information now? What are we, what are we gonna do with that? It came from the Wuhan market. Well, well, I'm not buying my groceries there anymore. <laughs> Cancel Instacart order. Oh, and finally, the jackpot for the mega millions lottery is now sitting at over a billion dollars. Billion, which is like a week's worth of gas. <laughs> and just, just by the way, just by the way, can I just say how I, I love how people hate paying taxes, but if you think about it, a lottery is really just taxes, right? We all put our money into a thing and then it goes to someone and then everyone's like, yeah, this is fair, this is fair. But then if you, if you say to everyone, let's take that money and put a billion dollars into schools, everyone's like, taxes are bullshit. Oh, I don't wanna pay 
Jack, Jack, Jack. I know. Then you're like, okay, let's all put our money in. And then one person gets it. Everyone's like, yeah, this is great. This is fantastic. This is a fair system. I don't know why we don't all do it. Oh, actually, actually, there's another thing. Uh, the Justice Department is now actively investigating Donald Trump's involvement in the plot to overturn the election. Yeah, another investigation. And I don't know, guys, at this point, I feel like the Justice Department is just gonna have to dedicate an entire division to Trump. You know, just give him his own one. You know, like they'll have National Security Division, the Civil Rights Division, and then the, what the hell did Donald Trump do now division? Because, <laughs> you know, it's gonna be a high-stress environment. It's basically gonna sound like a, a fast food joint during the dinner rush. You know, it's just like, we got two tax evasions! Uh, we got three witness tamperings! We got a serving of corruption! And don't forget the porn star on the side! Come on! We got crimes, people! Keep it moving! Keep it moving! But anyway, let's move on to some of the bigger news stories of the day. Starting with China. First name, made in. For decades now, the world has been worried about if or when China would choose to invade Taiwan. And the reason for this is that China has said that Taiwan is part of China. But they're out there in the streets acting like they're single. And because China knows that invading Taiwan could spark an international incident, they haven't done it, right? But since Russia invaded Ukraine and basically only got canceled on Twitter, it's been reported that the Chinese government thinks that now might be the perfect time to strike. Yeah, it's the same way I saw my friend Brian telling his mom to go to hell. And I thought, wow, that's a cool idea. I'm gonna go tell my mom off too. <laughs> yeah, that was the day I made the very painful discovery that my mom has a very different parenting style than Brian's mom, <laughs> very different. Anyway, Russia is basically Brian, right? And so China, is preparing to take what they say is rightfully theirs. But it turns out if they wanna get to Taiwan, they're gonna need to go through Nancy Pelosi. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's plan to visit Taiwan has created a stir in both Beijing and Washington. Tensions are running high between the U.S. and China amid talks of a visit by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. U.S. officials are working to convince Pelosi of the diplomatic risks of her potential trip. Beijing is furious over a potential trip by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. China sees the self-world island as a breakaway province that must be reunified with the mainland. Beijing is against any move that appears to acknowledge Taiwan as an independent country or makes the U.S. relationship more formal. And just yesterday, China's Defense Department urged the U.S. to cancel Pelosi's visit. The department spokesperson said, quote, if the U.S. insists on taking its own course, the Chinese military will never sit idly by. God damn. Oh, they make it sound like the Chinese military is just gonna run over Nancy Pelosi with a tank, you know, completely destroy her. I mean, that would be good preparation for the midterms, but still, I don't know why she would go there. And I know what you're thinking right now. I know what you're thinking. You're like, why is Nancy Pelosi trying to provoke a war, huh? Did she buy stock in bomb shelters last week? Hey, show some respect. Those other stock trades were just lucky guesses. No, the truth is Nancy Pelosi has been a big champion of Taiwanese independence for decades now. It's her thing. But this still is a big headache for Joe Biden, right? Between inflation, Ukraine, gas prices, and the midterms, the man does not have time to get into a war with China. I mean, that's probably the reason COVID left him so quickly. The virus was like, my man, you dealing with a bunch of shit right now. I'm a bounce. But I'll be back in a few weeks. I can do that now. You, you gotta handle yourself. You know, you know what Nancy's doing here? Because the administration is like, don't do it, Nancy. And Nancy's like, I'm going anyway. She's doing that classic thing 
where like drunk white women get into a fight on behalf of their men, you know that thing? Where they're just like, you know what? We're not gonna take this. My boyfriend's gonna kick your ass. And the boyfriend's like, no, Nancy, 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 shut up, shut up, Nancy. Nancy, this is China. It's like, I don't care. Yeah, my boyfriend knows karate. It's like, God damn it, Nancy, just get in the car. Get in the car, Nancy. No one wants a world war. Oh, and speaking of a potential world war, we should definitely talk about the battle that's brewing over Instagram. You know, the best app to see which of your high school friends are involved in pyramid schemes. If you've been on Instagram lately, you may have noticed that it, um, it sucks, right? <laughs> Everything is an ad, and your feed is full of people you don't follow, which is so confusing. Yeah, because I'm scrolling, and I start reading someone's post, and I'm like, do, do I know this person? Was I supposed to be at this wedding? <laughs> And then you look and it says, because you follow your friend, we thought you might like a post from a stranger. No, I don't. <laughs> like, it's a cute dress. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, everyone. Everyone's been complaining about Instagram, right? Everyone's been complaining. But they haven't been forced to respond until now because the royal family of Instagram has stepped into the fray. Instagram is defending itself after users started complaining about changes to the social media platform. It all started Monday when Kylie Jenner and Kim Kardashian posted messages on Instagram saying, make Instagram Instagram again. Stop trying to be TikTok. Users appeared to have agreed slamming Instagram for pushing more video content rather than pictures. CEO Adam Mosseri responded on Twitter saying the changes are designed to improve the user experience. I do believe that more and more of Instagram is gonna become video over time. We see this even if we change nothing. Mosseri said the changes will help people discover new content, but he said users can turn off recommendations for one month if they don't like what's in their feed. Yeah, that's right, people. You thought Instagram was for pictures of your friends. Well, that's over. <laughs> yeah, you were always bitching about brunch pics. Now you're gonna be to see them. Be like, please, was it eggs? Was it avocado toast? I just want to know what my friends were eating. Too bad. You ain't never gonna see your friends again. <laughs> and it really sucks, man. It sucks because we choose who to follow for a reason. Now they're just gonna switch it on us? You can't do that. You know? Like the 12 disciples were followers of Jesus, right? They chose Jesus. Can you imagine if one day someone was just like, today's sermon will be delivered by Ja Rule. <laughs> and be like, no, wait, wait, I wanted to hear from Jesus. Like, no, no, trust us, this will be better. Take it away, Ja Rule. <laughs> thou shalt always be there when thou calls. Thou shalt always be on time. And gave you my laws. Even worse, it seems like Instagram wants to get into the algorithm game. And that's what I'm worried about, because it's gonna change everything. Because you see, the thing is, algorithms, they're only about engagement, right? They only feed you things that make you angry, make you sad, make you horny. <laughs> and the problem with that is that it all happens within a few posts, so it's an emotional roller coaster. You know, just like, oh, I'm so mad about this random racist event, and I'm sad about all the poverty, and god damn, that ass is fine. <laughs> voted for Trump, ah! All right, that's it for today's headlines. Let's move on to something that everyone loves. It's time to check in on today's lotto numbers with Dulce Sloan, everybody! Great to see you, Dulce. So good to see you.
today. How you doing? What's happening in the lottery? I'm very confused as to why I'm doing this lotto. What? What do you mean? There's a billion dollar lotto that somebody's gonna win. Why am I doing this regular ass lotto? Like, you never told me why I'm doing Like, what do you win in this rinky-dink ass lotto? I come in here every couple of weeks, read some American numbers, and then go to hell on about my business. What am I even here for? Well, well the reason you're here is because I'm trying to do Winning like a... a billion dollars is too much money. That's super villain money. You hold a country ransom and ask for a billion dollars. That's the kind of money that could ruin your life. Do you imagine a regular person just going into a 7-Eleven to get a hot pocket that's gonna be hot on the outside but cold on the inside? They already don't make good choices and then they walk out a billionaire? Do you want Hot Pocket Kenny to be a billionaire? No, you don't. The best thing they can do is to just give 100 people $10 million. Yeah, that's great. That makes sense. But why? Why? like NFL money. You see what I'm saying? You buy your mama a house, you pay your homeboy's rent for a year, and you're done. That's all you gotta do. Because just walking into a 7-Eleven and winning a billion dollars is disrespectful to billionaires. Okay? We know what Oprah went through. To become a billionaire, she hasn't had bread in years. Bezos worked off the back and bladders of his employees <laughs> to get to be a billionaire and send a dick to space. <laughs> and I'm just supposed to respect somebody who walked into a 7-Eleven, burned their mouth in a stale taquito, <laughs> and now has more money than the gross national product of most countries? No, the disrespect! Because that man's not gonna do classy billionaire shit like put a boat in a boat. No, he's gonna... <laughs> what? That's classy billionaire shit! You ain't seen the picture of the man parking a boat in his yacht? So, okay, so what are Sexy. they gonna do? You know, you, you know what he's gonna do. He's gonna put a trailer in a trailer. <laughs> the rich don't need this. The Illuminati don't need this. The Illuminati don't need broke dicks showing up to their Illuminati sex party. <sighs> okay, Dulce, uh, please, just, just read my lottery numbers, please. 11, listen. <sighs> you know, I'm glad Biden's not sick anymore, 22. But <laughs> what I wanna know is what happened to the good old days when your president was sick? and they didn't tell you. <laughs> didn't we have a president with polio? Do you know which one it was? Exactly! 48. You're not supposed to know that a president has a debilitating disease, okay? We are the most powerful country in the world. Everybody hates us, and we have all the guns, right? So, if the man with the nuclear codes has his wife rubbing Vicks Vapor Rub on his chest, 
and seven. Okay, don't, don't say, wait, wait, where are you getting these numbers from? Trevor, where are we getting the money from for this lotto? Now, Trevor, shouldn't you be saying thank you, Dulce Sloan? Thank you, Dulce Sloan. <laughs> All right, don't go away, because when we come back, Ronnie Chang is going to Hard Out, Idaho. Does he come back? We'll find out after the break. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Daily Show. We all know that America is divided into red states and blue states. But what happens when there's a red and blue division inside a state? Well, Ronnie Chang went to find out. America is becoming more and more politically divided every day. But I found an answer to this division right here in the heart of... Wait, where the hell are we again? Deep in Eastern Oregon, one patriot has come up with an ingenious plan to fix his state's political gridlock. My name is Mike McCarter. I'm the president of Move Oregon's Border, Citizens for Greater Idaho. Okay, so what is Move Oregon's Border? We want to adjust the border, taking Eastern Oregon, shifting to Idaho, to help maintain the conservative values that Idaho has over there. You're like the first guy I've ever met who wants to go to Idaho. For decades, Oregon has been a blue state, with most of its population concentrated around Portland in the Northwest. But the conservative eastern counties of Oregon are sick of this liberal woke barista bullshit, and they're ready to GTFOO, get the f out of Oregon, and become part of greater Idaho. There was just one thing that didn't make sense to me. Okay, this might sound crazy, but why don't you just move to Idaho? By moving the border, we're changing who governs us without having to pull up our stakes. You want the Idaho without having to be in Idaho? Absolutely. It's ingenious. I want a better government over me. But yet not have to live in Idaho. No, not have to live in Idaho, not have to move. I exactly. can stay where I, where I live exactly. right now. Exactly, where it's great. Yes. And it's not Idaho. Right. And as crazy as this idea might sound, this movement has momentum. Nine Oregon counties have already passed ballot measures to explore joining Idaho, with two more voting in November. So what exactly do these people hate about their neighbors in the Northwest? It's pretty much the same stuff all Fox News viewers hate about whatever city they live next to. I grew up around Portland. You used to be able to walk the streets and stuff. Now you get shot. Racial riots, just a reason to riot. Break in, free TVs, you know. They voted in for the more marijuana plants. Now they're going to put in the mushroom plants. I hear you, but 
Idaho. It's not moving to Idaho. Yeah, it's bringing the border We're over. Border. No, no, of course. Like, you don't want to move to Idaho. That would be crazy. You want to bring Idaho. Yes. These cultural differences are tearing Oregon apart, but not everyone thinks divorce is the answer. Constitutional law scholar Norman Williams. This is not going to happen. Moving a state border even five or 10 yards is tremendously difficult. South Carolina and North Carolina did this just in 2017. Okay, well, it's been done before, just do it more. If you look at the statutes that both states had to do to just deal with 19 homes being moved, you move the Oregon-Idaho border by 300, 400 miles, the complexity of that is just overwhelming. Man, you would have been such a bummer on the Oregon Trail. You would have been the guy who's like, what about typhoid? What about diphtheria? What about the cost of oxen? Cock the wagon or get the f out. Turns out there's a ton of obstacles on the trail out of Oregon. Liabilities, state debt, pension obligations, and a long list of incompatible laws, especially recreational marijuana. Legal in Oregon, not in Idaho. But luckily, Mike has those answers. I don't have those answers. And I shouldn't answer those questions because I'm not in the decision process. You're just the ideas guy. It's like walking into your house and going, hey, let's get a divorce. Or let's sit down and talk about it. Let's put it into the legislators hands because they're they're the decision makers so leave it to these politicians they're the same politicians you want to secede from just let those guys handle this yeah but will this idea even make it to the state house nitpicky norman says no way the people aren't going to vote for it once they know the costs what cost idaho's going to have to pay oregon for the value of all the land and buildings that the state of oregon owns in eastern oregon uh, i've been there it's it looks virtually worthless a very conservative estimate of the cost would be somewhere between 10 and 15 billion dollars oh what you think idaho's not good for it do you know how many potatoes these guys sell a lot still he had a point Eastern Oregon wasn't just trying to divorce Portland, they also wanted to marry Idaho. Was Idaho ready for that level of commitment? I headed for downtown uh, Idaho to find out. I think they're, they're welcome. I don't see why not. I mean, Eastern Oregon is pretty much just like Idaho anyway. Welcome, they have open arms? Yeah. Just wait until they hear about the price tag. How much would you personally pay for Eastern Oregon to join Idaho? <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to pay anything. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, or Idaho would have to buy Oregon State assets to move it over. It's not just as simple as, you know. Yeah, oh, I don't know, 10 million? Probably gonna be closer to 10 billion. Then that's a hard no. This is what Idaho will get. A seaport, maybe. 800,000 angry gun-toting conservatives. Sweet. And a ton of empty desolate land. I mean, Idaho's already got however many angry gun-owning, truck-driving people, so I think we're, we're about capped on that. Would you guys be okay with having to drive an extra six hours for legal weed? Ooh. Yeah. Sorry, I said six hours, but really it's six hours there and then six hours back, so that's yeah. a 12-hour right, right. trip. Yeah, uh, no, that doesn't sound good. I mean, at that point, you might as well drive to Mexico and get some fresh cocaine. Even if you paid us, we wouldn't let you come in. <laughs> Even if Eastern Oregon paid you to join Idaho, you'd be like, no. Yeah, exactly. And you're telling Eastern Oregonians to f*** off and not tell us what to do. Yes. With a heavy heart, I drove the six hours back to Mike to give him the bad news. Okay, look, so Idaho said no, but 
Let me just pitch you some other states here to join, okay? Washington. Not as conservative as Idaho, so that's a no. Okay, what about California? That's a definite no. Okay, how about uh, Nevada? Northern Nevada would like to be part of Idaho. No, would you like to join Nevada as it is right now? No. Look, Goldilocks, I'm trying to help you here, okay? Successionists can't be choosers. Yes, we can. Who knows? Maybe someday Idaho is the biggest state in the union. Why can't part of Oregon, part of Kentucky, part of Iowa, what about coming together, even though we don't share a common border? Why can't we just become the state of Idaho? Maybe Mike has a point. Why can't we all just declare which state we want to be a part of, regardless of which state we actually live in? Forget gerrymandering and redistricting. Let us figure it out ourselves. By the power invested in me by nobody, I hereby declare you a man in Idaho. No one's gonna check if this is real. It's kind of like vaccine cards. Thank you so much for that, Ronnie Chang. All right, stay tuned, because when we come back, we'll be chatting to an author who believes America needs more policing, so don't go away. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight... My guest tonight is Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow, Rafael Manguel. He uh, heads research for the Institute's Policing and Public Safety Initiative, and he's written a new book called Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts the Most. So please welcome Rafael Manguel. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real honor and very exciting. Oh yeah, this is, uh, this is great. I'm glad, glad to have you here because you've, you've written a really interesting book that in many ways argues, you know, decarceration and depolicing is leading America down the wrong path. So I'd love to know, just off the bat, what do you think people who want to defund the police and reallocate the resources or reduce incarceration, what, what do you think they're getting wrong? Well, I think they're getting a couple of things wrong. One is that I think they misunderstand what the causes of crime are, right? The defund movement is kind of built around this idea that if we just divert this funding away from policing and incarceration and prosecution and give it to other community programs, social spending programs, that we can reduce crime that way. But this assumes that the causes of crime, the root causes of crime, so to speak, are socioeconomic in nature. I don't think they are. I know it's counter to the, the, the sort of uh, conventional wisdom, but if you look at New York City, for example, where we all are, one of the safest cities in America, 1989, 
our poverty rate was actually slightly lower than it was in 2016. Why do I pick those two years? Because those are the years that preceded the peak number of murders of 2,262 in 1990 and the valley number of murders, 292 in 2017. So we were able to get crime drastically down without doing anything about poverty. We don't see violence sort of track with other, you know, uh, socioeconomic problems, unemployment, et cetera. You know, so that I think is a major pillar of what they get wrong. The other thing is, is frankly, I think they misunderstand what the research says about police, which is that more policing means less crime, and the people who benefit are the people who are dealing with the biggest crime problems. And that's well, really who I wrote the book for. Well, well let's, let's jump into that because, you know, you are a data person. Yes. That, that, that is something that, you know, even your, your critics don't detract from you. They say you are a data person. And, and many of the statements you make in the book are supported by data or you argue based on the data that you've received. But there are a few things that I, I find confusing. You know, the one that you just said is more policing equals less crime. Yes. Right? But in America, you see policing increase. By your argument, why is it that any number would go up from one previous year when the policing has only increased from year to year? How do you explain that? So, you know, there's, there are a lot of reasons uh, for, for why that. So one is that the effectiveness of police has a lot to do with other things that are going on mm -hmm. in the criminal justice system, right? So when police officers make an arrest and they take a criminal off the street, the benefits associated with that arrest are going to be different if you're talking about a jurisdiction in which the prosecutor isn't going to bring charges, which we see much more often now, in which a lengthy sentence is less likely, which we see much more often now, or in which the punishments on the table are no longer going to incapacitate the individuals and take them off the street. So in a lot of cities, despite this fact that spending on police is, has remained steady or even gone up, yeah. we have seen crime go up. But the reasons for that is not because policing is ineffective. Every single econometric analysis that's worth itself that's actually looked at the impact of policing on crime finds that you get less crime when you increase policing and that, that those benefits are sort of disproportionately enjoyed by low-income minority communities which is a really important point because again that's who I wrote this book for that's it's interesting that you say that because you know you, you talk in the book about mass incarceration you talk in the book about things like stop and frisk you even yeah. talk about victimization yeah. what I find um, confusing in the book is you will talk about stop and frisk, you know? And from, from what I gather in the book, you're pro stop and frisk, right? I would say. Or uh, you're not against it, maybe? I'm not against it. Okay, yeah, you're not it's against it. It's a tool that should be on the table. Okay, so now, now yeah. what's confusing in the book is you, you make an argument that seems like you are blaming the people who are being disproportionately stopped yeah. and frisked for how they act. You know, there's a part in the book where you say, and I'll paraphrase, you don't, sure. don't, you know, don't get me wrong, is you say it's because they act street or they look criminal and so the police stop them when they shouldn't stop them. So my, my question to you is this, like, what, what is acting street or acting criminal and who gets to define that? So, you know, there's the, the, that chapter you're talking about is the chapter on false positives, uh -huh. right? The, the false positive is the kind of situation in which a cop stops somebody based on suspicion and it turns yes. out that that person doesn't have any contraband. Right. Um, the chapter is based on a, a really important sociological work by a kind of left of center sociologist named Elijah Anderson called Code of the Street. And it's an ethnographic work that's based in North Philadelphia in the early 90s, late 80s. And what he finds is that there is a kind of street culture of where people adopt an outward facing posture that's been well documented in research across Right. Uh, okay. the years where you know you kind of uh, one example I give the book actually is from my personal life I didn't always look like this I didn't always dress like this when I was a kid I had you know cornrows and I was 16 and you know had that kind of thug attitude and hung out with some bad kids and, and I tell the story about one day being in the mall in Long Island we're walking down the corridor we all kind of got our thug walks going on mm -hmm. and we walk past a group of white kids 
And they kind of diverted their eyes, and we all got off on it. We all thought it was like, hey, we're these tough guys, and you know, we, 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 we got a sense that this was something good. A few days later, I was in my local deli and got online behind a, a white woman who kind of noticed me behind her and turned around and very discreetly clutched her purse. And I remember feeling offended, saying, like, you know, what's, what's this lady's problem? I've never thought about robbing anyone a day in my life. And what I realized in that moment was that she was picking up on the very same signals that we were perfectly happy for those other kids to pick up. And but, but, what, but, but what Elijah argues... Yeah, but, but before you go further sure. on this. So the issue I have with this argument is, in many ways, it sounds like what you are saying is that the way of being is what people should change because the way of being is what determines whether you are perceived as a criminal or not, right? But, but like, like, listen to what you just said. You sure. just said, I had the cornrows and all kinds, I was, yeah. I was in the thugging. What does cornrows have to do with being a criminal or not? Like, this, this is the problem Absolutely. in America. Right? No, wait, wait, I'm just saying. So, what, 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 I, what I notice in the book is it seems like you make an argument that without explicitly saying it, and maybe you're not even saying that, right. it, it, it's, it's almost like you're implicitly saying what we need to do as people of color is just be a little more white. Just no. be a little more, no, 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 let's no, get no, a little, no, 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 no. you're saying a little That's less not, of the, the baggy, no, 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 the, the walk and the talk, and let's be a little, because that woman who clutched her purse, that has nothing to do with you. That's exactly. her clutching exactly. her purse, exactly. right? So that, in fact, if you read the chapter in its entirety, you'll see that I very explicitly say that it would be entirely wrong to blame people for these things. Right. And that so now, these so now, interactions are incredibly embarrassing, infuriating, right. they shouldn't happen. And so it's not an excuse for bad policing. What it is, it's an, an explanation for why some of these mistakes may be happening. But here's, One okay, that's but, here's, but wait, wait, here's the thing, here's the thing. Forgive me for interrupting, here's the thing. I understand that you say it's a mistake, but at the same time you say that it is not a mistake because the person is making an active decision. It doesn't seem like a mistake, it seems like an act of discrimination. And so let, let's think of it like this, using a stupid analogy, right? You have police who you are arguing in the book, and we've seen this in society, okay are not able to discern. They just go like, well, those black people who walk like this must all be criminals. I'm gonna search all of them. I'm gonna spoil all of their days, right? But isn't that then a sign that the police need to be reformed? Absolutely. Because they are the people who are making this decision incorrectly, this right? If we had a bunch of pilots, sure. if we had a bunch of pilots yeah, yeah. who, yeah. Let's say there's a bunch of pilots who crash all the time, right? Yeah, a bunch yeah. of pilots who crash all the time, and then it's like, oh, why, why do they crash? Oh, they can't tell the difference between mountains and the runway. Right. We wouldn't say, like, well, the mountains have got to change how they look because they look like the runway. We'd be like, the pilots need to learn how to be right. better pilots. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah, absolutely. The, the chapter, it, it's really, really important that you understand that that chapter is not about excusing false positives or saying that they are, that they are good things or that people somehow deserve them. It's an attempt to explain what's going on in a way that I think lowers the temperature of our rhetorical debate because evidence of false positives is taken to be prima facie evidence of racial bias on mm -hmm. the part of the police officer. Are but, you saying it's not? Uh, not necessarily. What they may be picking up on are outward facing postures that have been associated with violence. But, but what are the violence. postures and how are they associated with? The same with? ones that I quote Nipsey Hussle talking about in that very same right. chapter where is, he says, yes. when I was in a gang and we were going out looking for an op, we weren't looking for somebody who was dressed square. We were looking for someone who looked like us, who walked like us, yes. who had the attitude that we had, and it was wrong in that context. But do you, but you hear what he said as well? Us. Yes. There is a key element that is missing here, and you're neglecting the fact that people are able to understand within their communities who the us is and who the us isn't. Black people can walk through a community, see a bunch of black people, and go like, oh, that person, I know they might be shifty or not. But it's not because they're black, it's not because their pants are sagging, it's not because you sure. understand how someone may be moving in your hood, right? So it's different when Nipsey Hussle says us. What you're talking about is a police going them. They are criminals. They are all suspicious because they are not the us. No, I, 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 
You, you I don't think so. I don't think that's how I put it. The other point I'd make, too, is that in a lot of cities, the majority of police officers, like in New York, are not white. Right, so these are people who live in these communities, who come from these same communities, um, and I think but, they but understand. I think, I think, I think, I think they, they understand these points. I understand. I think that, they yes. understand I, these distinctions. Right, but too. I think there we get into a different issue, which is about you know how are police incentivized to make that, and that's separate. You're not sure. arguing that, so let's not get into that. How are they incentivized to make their money? Sure. Let's let's talk a little bit more about um, the, the the decarceration and the depolicing. Yeah. Here's something that a lot of people find confusing: when crime goes down, people argue that the police should get paid more. Makes sense. When crime goes up, people say, well, the police should get paid more. It seems like policing is one of the few jobs or areas where, whether the outcomes are good or bad, more funding should go in. Joe Biden just announced that they're going to be pouring money into getting more and more and more police onto the streets. And my, my only question to you is, as a data person, what data is there to support that? That then, like, growing the police force more, putting more money into it, is actually giving us the result that we're looking for? The, the trove of studies showing that when you increase police presences, you reduce crime, and that you do so disproportionately in the neighborhoods with the biggest crime problems, right? So there have been studies, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you know, random analyses that look at, uh, they looked at uh, policing presence on, along the National Mall in D.C. Right. shortly after 9-11, right? And what this study did was it looked at when the terror alert level changed, right? That was kind of a random random uh, thing that happened that you couldn't predict, the police presence would change. Mm -hmm. When the police presence increased, they found massive decreases in crime along the National Mall, which is where the presence mm -hmm. increased. Every single study of policing that's been, you know, there, there was a study of, out of UPenn that mm -hmm. looked at expanding uh, patrols of private police forces from the University of Pennsylvania Police Department outside the campus, and they found that when they did that, crime went down in those areas, right? So every time that this analysis is, is done, it shows the same thing. Now, we can argue about whether the costs associated with policing are worth the benefits, but one thing we know is that we haven't yet really figured out a way to produce the same kind of crime declines that policing has, has, has produced, particularly in the communities in which it's produced it. And, and I think that's a really, really important point because when we argue about defunding the police, we're not arguing about ourselves, right? I, I, I live in a really good neighborhood, I'm sure you do too. We're arguing about people who have a very, very different day-to-day -day life. And one thing that it's important to understand is that crime is very concentrated. It's not something that's equally distributed across the country. In New York City, about 5% of street segments see about 50% of all crime. About 3.5% see about 50% of all violent crime. Every single year for, for which we have data, going back to at least 2008, a minimum a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims in the city are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them male, right? That's one of the starkest, most persistent racial disparities in the data. We don't talk enough about it, and we don't talk enough about what it means to get crime down for those communities that are really dealing with I, it on a day-to-day -day basis. I respectfully think we do talk about it. Those communities talk about it all the time. The people who are involved in these shootings talk about it all the time. Oftentimes, it just doesn't become a conversation in but mainstream media. But if you ask them what they country. want, they don't say less policing. 81% no, of black Americans in, in, in the United States told Gallup last year that they want as much, if not more, policing that they're currently but I, getting. But I think if you're going to be fair to black Americans, what they're also looking for is equal policing. Absolutely. They want the protecting and the serving Absolutely. part as well. Right? Absolutely. So, so here's, here's, here's where I find an issue with the data. I would not disagree with you. Having a police presence probably does mean that there is going to be a reduction in crime. However, it doesn't seem like a sustainable way to ensure that there is no crime, because all you're doing is saying, like, when a policeman is there, there is no crime. However, as soon as the policeman moves, the crime might come back. And then you're like, well, then we need more police, and then we need more... At the end of the day, the whole country is just police then, and then we all are the police, right? What, what I'm, no, no, what I'm saying to you is this, is it seems to ignore the fact that crime comes from somewhere. And, and you, you talk about this in the book, sure. right? You talk about this in the book. You say that 
you know, according to the data you've seen, you don't believe that um, crime is caused by poverty. You don't believe that crime is caused by a lot of the things that people, you, you in fact believe that uh, crime is caused by trauma, yeah. you know, that crime is caused by what is happening in these communities. It's a vicious cycle. Absolutely. My question to you then is, if you believe those things, and in the same book you talk about, you know, kids or just members of communities who are traumatized by these police, is it not then true that the police themselves are causing more of the crime because they're traumatizing the very communities they're supposed to be policing? When they, when they actually traumatize these communities, absolutely. The question is, is how often does that happen, particularly compared to the sort of trauma that's associated with serious crime and witnessing that crime and being abused as a child and, 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 and being violently victimized, right? These, uh, the, the argument is not that policing is perfect, right? If you're looking for someone to sit here and say that there's no oh, way no, no, that no, we no, can yeah, reform never, no. the criminal yes. justice system, that there's no room for mm -hmm. improvement, it's not me. Right? The, the reality is, is that, yeah, these are human endeavors. Any human endeavor is going to be imperfect. People are going to make mistakes. People are going to be malevolent. They're going to be evil. They're going to exercise the powers that they're given, and they're going to abuse them. That happens. Right. I acknowledge that. But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, because when we do that, can real people suffer real harm. And it's hard for, I think, a lot of people um, you know, to... to to just internalize what that's like, right? I mean, you know, the, every year for the last few years, the national homicide rate has kind of hovered around five or six per 100,000. There are neighborhoods on the west side of Chicago, West Garfield Park, for example, where the homicide rate is 131 per 100,000. And, and, so, and so here's the thing that I find interesting in America. People will often argue about policing in those neighborhoods. People don't seem to talk enough about over-policing and under-policing. You know, you, you, your dad was a police officer, he was, right? Yeah. And one thing I think everyone knows, you know, whether you are on the police force or whether you are a person who is in a community experiencing high crime, is that particularly in America, the over-policing and the under-policing give you a strange world where they present you a world where you, you, you don't know which is better for you. People often call the police, the police don't show up, or they show up many hours after the incident has taken place. Or when the police do show up, they show up to terrorize the very communities that needed them for something else and now don't need them, but then now treat them as the criminals, right? And so what I, what I find interesting in this conversation, people always bring up, oh, Chicago, and they bring up these places, the South Side, and they bring up, but they don't bring up the correlation of spending in these places. They don't bring up how much the government puts into these places, the parks that are in these places, the schools that are in these places, the aftercare programs that are in these places, the money that is put into these, these, these places. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. People always make it seem like, oh, the Hamptons has no crime, probably because of the cops. It's like, well, how much do they put in? You know, where do the taxes get allocated? Where does the money go? And I, I think sometimes there's a strange, I'm not saying you're wrong, by the way, I'm just saying, do you consider that correlation as well? Absolutely, and, and in the book, I go through some of the data, you know, out of cities like Chicago, where you saw massive increases, for example, in per people spending on, on public education, where over, you know, just a handful of years, 2014 to 2016, mm -hmm. you go from about 15% over the national average per pupil to about 30% over the national average per pupil. Between 2014 and 2016, in Chicago murders went up, they didn't go down. Yeah, but, but you see, look at that time period. What is the time period that you're measuring this over? Two years. Yeah, but I'll give you an analogy. When we look at building a soccer team anywhere in the world, I know sure. Americans hate soccer, whatever. <laughs> when we look at building a soccer team, do you know when you have to start? When they're children. Sure. And do you know Absolutely. when you look at the success? 
is when they're old enough to play in the national team. Absolutely. And that's literally what we do. We go, okay, we want to win the World Cup in. You don't go, I want to win the next World Cup. It's impossible. You right, go, right, right. we're going to start a program where we will only see the results when this generation sure. is old enough. What I feel like happens in America is every program that comes in, people go, oh, we, we, we raised, we, we got schools two years ago, and look, crimes went up. However, they don't use that same argument for police. We gave right. police money two years ago. How are crimes went still up? People are like, then we got to give more to the police. But they don't say, we got to give more to the schools. Right. How come that doesn't happen? Well, I'm all for giving as much money. I'm, I'm, I'm just, just saying. Like, I'm not against social No, no, spending. you're not. And you're not. By the way, I'm you're not. not. I don't even want to paint you as that. No, yeah, please. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you are. What, what I'm saying is that the, the relationship between these kinds of factors and violent crime yes. is not consistent. It's not clear. What we do know is that we can reduce violent crime by taking violent criminals off the street. I mean, I frankly, for one, am tired of reading stories of really heinous crimes, homicides. I write in the book about a, a woman murdered in Chicago in 2019 um, by a guy who had nine prior felony convictions, one for a second degree murder. What was he doing out on the street? I'm tired of reading stories about people He's raped, but, but, robbed by people who have 15, okay, 20 but, but, prior but, but, arrests. Raphael, be that fair. happens okay. a lot. But be fair. You're a data guy, yes. right? And now you're using anecdotal stories. No, 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 this no, is no, data. No, 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 I can no, tell no, you no, that in Chicago, the no. average homicide suspect has 12 prior arrests. 20% have but, more than 20 prior but, arrests. Okay, so now, again, I'm not saying any of this is wrong. What I'm arguing is, your, 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 the thesis you put forward in this book is that we need to get more police. We need to get more incarceration. This is the thesis of the book, not right? I think the thesis of the book is more so that the calls to radically defund police and radically reduce incarceration okay, so, so you're not are wrong. So you're not for the, okay, so that, okay, fine. So would this you is an argue, argument against the program, not okay, an argument necessarily so you, you don't believe that we should have more program. incarceration then? I think actually in some places we do, yeah. Okay, I think so you we, are saying we have yes both, to that. We have an under-incarceration problem, we also have an over-incarceration problem. Okay, so now, so now let me ask you this question. Yeah. Again, this is what I just go to is, oftentimes I find America is intent on solving the symptom but not the cause, okay? Let's talk about incarceration. Sure. Let's talk about incarceration. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand this, and, and I don't see any of the data uh, about this in the book. America is a country where people say you serve the time, right? It implies that you pay the price for what you have done, however, once you have paid that price, you are not a functioning member of society. You do not come back into society. You are not allowed to get many jobs. In many places, you're not allowed to vote. You're not allowed to be a functioning member of society. And then people are surprised when those members now go into a certain society that we don't want them to be into. Right. Oh, it's the recidivism rate. The people are going back to prison. They're getting back into crime. But crime is an industry that accepts them regardless of what they've done, ironically, right? right. And so the thing I don't see in this book uh, that I would love to know if there's any data on it is, what is the difference when people are actually given the opportunities? You know, you go to other countries around the world, they don't see prison as punishment. They look at it as rehabilitation. They go, sure. we're gonna take you off the streets. So I agree with you on this. Same thing we've been doing before police were even invented. In African villages, we'd go, you are going to be taken away from the situation you've created. However, the purpose is rehabilitation. Yeah. We're either gonna make you change, or if you won't, then we'll work from there. But American so, prisons don't change people for the better, and they no, don't they give don't. them an opportunity to come out being a better person. Oftentimes, and they, then they get surprised when the people do what they only now have options to do. Yeah, oftentimes they make people worse, right? I mean, we agree I, on this. I, I am not a person who believes that the experience of incarceration is one that should be inhumane. It's one that you know people should suffer. I'm not a retributivist. At right, heart. and you don't you don't right? write that. I, at all. Yes. I, I I think that the, to me the main benefit of incarceration is incapacitation. It's taking people off the street so that the communities can have room to breathe as and, a result and I will of, say this, to, of to your credit, maybe crimes. something we, we actually can agree on is, you do talk about how the court system is underfunded and Absolutely. overrun. And I will say one thing I did agree with you on is, if we can get a better system that's more efficient, yeah. you won't have people who are stuck in the system 
who have done nothing wrong right. and shouldn't be there. Now, I argue a lot of that has to do with bad policing, but we won't go back into sure. that. <laughs> we won't go back into sure. No, no, no. We, 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 we agree on the core I'm, thing. I'm so, glad we found something we can agree on. No, no. We, we, I think we agree on a lot. We're yeah. only talking about really like the, right. the, the, the finer details of what we don't. So, but, but one quick thing on the, on, on the rehabilitation point, yeah. you know, one of the assumptions underlying your argument is that we have figured out how to reliably rehabilitate people, particularly at scale, across a prison population mm -hmm, of nearly mm -hmm. two million people. We haven't. We don't, we don't have the infrastructure in place to do that, and we don't really know how to do that reliably. There's some programs that but, show some success. There's some that don't. Some investments that pay off, some that don't. Some programs that show success, you extend the observation mm -hmm. period to four or five, ten mm -hmm. years, and you see a reversion back toward the mean. I am all for, by the way, reducing the barriers to reentry. Yes. I think that's a huge problem. Okay. I've written this in the past. You know, the, the idea that you can't get an occupational license to be a barber or a, you right, know, a right, cosmetologist right, right. because you have a criminal record is absolutely ridiculous to me. There's no reason why we should make it more difficult for people to reintegrate back into society. So, I'm so, not for yeah, that. Yes, so to what you're saying, I'm, I'll even agree with you on that. I'll go, let's say we agree that the programs that we have aren't work, or you cannot guarantee that they work. You do not know if they work, you're uncertain. Sure. But we do know that the current system doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work to do one thing, which is rehabilitate people. That's, that's but it not does, working. It does work to, to incapacitate people. And for to, how long and, and to what effect? Well, the question, that's the question, right? Is, is how long, right? So right now, the because median- Because at some point you realize America just locks up everybody and then what? We, no one's well, on the streets because there's no crime right? on the streets. Less than 1% of people on, you know, uh, of the population is in prison. Yeah, um, but how much is that? Say that as a number. We go less about, than yeah, one- it's a, it's a, In prisons, it's about, I don't know, 700,000 people. In prisons? In prisons versus jails, right? So you've know, oh, you got yeah, some people in jails. Let's yeah, right. say behind so, bars. So total, total incarcerated population is about 1.9 million people. And I, then how many people are going through that prison system? How many people are getting arrested? And then how many, you know? But not a lot of people get arrested and go to prison. There's this sort of, there's this narrative in our country that we systematically deny people second mm -hmm. chances, right? We have second chance month in the United States. The, the, the typical person who gets released from prison had more than 10 prior arrests before they were, before they entered prison their, their most recent time and more than five prior convictions. Um, it, it's, just, it's just not true that we deny people second chances. Only 40% of state felony convictions- well, We don't deny them typically because you said the typical person. Sure, right. So we, the, right. we don't deny them typically. There, there are certain, you can, we don't know what the I, number on typical is. You can dig into the data and I'm sure find anomalous situations where people have been absolutely railroaded by the system. We should identify those people right. and release them. I say that in the book. Yes. Right. There, there is a subset of our incarcerated population that shouldn't be there. What I think people have failed to appreciate is there's a subset of our general population that should be incarcerated, that shouldn't be out on the street. And the costs associated with the failure to do that are real. They fall disproportionately mm -hmm. on the most vulnerable communities in America. And it takes an incredibly gut-wrenching effect on, on people. I, I saw a video on Twitter the other day of, of a kid running on the west side of Chicago. He just happened to be walking home from school with his backpack, which was about half the size that he was. And he's walking past a group of kids who were targeted in a drive-by. He takes off running, and you can see the bullets still following him along the wall as he runs. They thought he was with them. His only mistake was walking past the wrong kids at the wrong time. And a huge part of the root of that problem in cities like Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia and Louisville is the systematic failure to take people who don't belong on the street off the street. I'm, I, I don't wanna see any more of that. I, I don't think anybody wants to see more of that. And I'll, I'll say two things before I let you go, because I'm loving this, by the way. Thank you for the conversation. The, um, the, the, the first part to that point is this. You know, the history of America is an interesting one in that people often talk about criminals as if there is no path to redemption and they are innately bad. When in fact, if you read through all of American history, oftentimes the people who become sure. 
the, the, the families who are respected, oftentimes people who become the lawmakers, come from a history of crime. You know, you can go back all the way to the Boston Tea Party, to the smugglers who were creating what they were, you know, who, who were smuggling the tea and they were, sure. you know, breaking the law. You can move forward, you know, you go to the, whether it's the Kennedys, the Rockefellers, whatever you want it to be. W one thing that I find interesting in America is, you know, it, it doesn't depend on whether or not you've done crime, it's whether or not you get the opportunity to turn that crime into a legitimate business. That's the first thing I find, <laughs> right? Um, the, I, I, I just want to talk about the video thing to what you're saying, because that, that reminded me of a part in your book where, and please correct me if I'm wrong, sure. you, it seems like you argue the videos we watch of police brutality make it seem like the situation is worse yeah. than it actually is, yeah. and you're saying it is not as bad as we think. Is, is that correct? Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, pol people think that police use force on a very, very regular basis. I think uh -huh. they'd be very, very surprised to learn that studies have shown, for example, that police use force in less than 1% of arrests, that police fire their weapons in less than 0.03% of arrests. Again, in the aggregate, in a country of 330 million people, that's a lot, right. right? It's a big number. But as a percentage of total interactions, of total arrests, of situations in which force might be used but isn't, it's actually a, a very, very rare phenomenon, and thank God that it is. Again, doesn't mean we shouldn't try to reduce it further, mm -hmm. uh, but, but it is not most, is most certainly not a common outcome, a, com a likely outcome of a police-citizen interaction. Now, I get the point that you're about to make, which is that, you know, well, aren't these videos, like the one you just talked about, about the kid being you know, shot at in Chicago, aren't those also creating the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, misconception? And the, the, it's very, very important that you, you understand that those videos are also backed by data, right? More than a third of convicted violent felons in America were, convi were convicted, where they, they committed their crime when they were either out on parole, out on probation, or out on pretrial release. We, again, I, I mentioned earlier, in Chicago, average number of prior arrests for someone who is charged with either a shooting or a homicide is 12. 20% of those people have more than 20 prior arrests. So it's not as if these are just sort of cherry-picked anecdotes. This is what's reflected in the data. I actually wasn't going to ask about that, but... Uh, no, no, genuinely, I, was, I wasn't. I wasn't, but I just I wanted to hear what you were going to say. I saw it going that way. No, 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 I, I wasn't. I was actually going to go to this. I, I really enjoyed the way you wrote this book because, Thank you know, I, I don't agree with some of the conclusions you draw from the data, okay. but, I, but I appreciate the, you know, the, uh, the way you've written it and that you've put thought into it and you acknowledge, you know, you don't make it seem like it's just people are just complaining about nothing. Sure. Th there's one thing that I, that I would love, and I, I know we won't get to that answer now, but it's, it's almost like a, a challenge to you as a data person is this. Time and time again in the United States, Communities who are poor, you know, black communities, even very poor white communities, for instance, have complained about the treatment they receive at the hands of police. Yeah. And one thing that we've noticed time and time again is that the information we get oftentimes doesn't match the data. And I, and I say this, you know, body cameras. Sure. I say that once you go into investigations into different police departments, we often find rampant racism. You know, we find corruption. We find signs that what the communities told people were actually true. And, and so my question to you as a data person is, with so much of the data that we look at in the world of crime coming from the police, yeah. do you not think that there should be an external source of data Absolutely. on crime on everything that goes with incarceration that doesn't come from the people that we are actually trying to hold accountable to make sure that we're dealing with accurate yeah, data. Sure. Um, absolutely. Uh, uh, again, you know, sort of implicit in that question is, is, is an accusation, right? That no, this, no, no, that this, no, no. something wrong. I'm saying, because you're the data, data guy, that's right. what, yeah. Well, so what we do have are victimization surveys. 
right? And, and what you would expect to see um, if there was, in fact, something wrong with the police data would be a serious incongruity between the police data and the data that's shown by, by victimization surveys. These are individuals who've been violently victimized who are you know, reporting to, to survey takers what they've experienced. Right. We see the same thing with respect to use of force surveys. The public, people who have contacts are, are, are surveyed by the Bureau of Justice Statistics and they report how often they're subjected to uses of force, how often uses of force are threatened, how often police officers draw their weapons, and we don't see an incongruity between the police data and the data reported by people who have been surveyed who have had police contacts. So I, I think that should just give us a little bit of a sense of security that maybe something isn't completely off with, with, with this data. I want to say thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having a conversation with yeah. me. And last but not least, get the cornrows back. Let's go walk in the streets. <laughs> Rafael's book, Criminal Injustice. A fascinating read is available now. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Thank you, MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, before we go... Please consider supporting RespectAbility, an organization that works to create systemic change in how society views and values people with disabilities. If you want to help them lobby for better policies and train organizations to empower people with disabilities, then please donate at the link below. Until next time, stay safe out there. And remember, maybe you can't find your friends on Instagram because you have no friends. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central. And stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.